Living life with purpose. We want to look now at what I mean by illustrating God. And I want to connect each of these principles back. Remember I told you at the beginning, they connect to the character of God. They flow from the character of God. I want you to see that. I want you to understand it. And I want it to bring meaning to your life about why you do it. Why it's important that you do these things. How it illustrates God to your neighbors. So, first of all, God is holy. And if there was a single word that you were given to describe God, it should be holy. Okay? In heaven, and we don't have time to look at all these scriptures. I'll show them to you here, and you can write them down. And I'll probably look at a few of them. In heaven, there is a chorus ringing continually. And the chorus is, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You see, a single word to describe God is that He's holy. And He is perfectly holy. There is not a speck of impurity in Him in any way. He's never made a mistake. He never will make a mistake. He is perfect. He is holy. Turn to Isaiah 57. And we'll just look at that verse. For thus saith the high and lofty one, that inhabiteth eternity, verse 15 of Isaiah 57. That's quite a description. Derek introduced me a few times when I came up here to speak. That wasn't the way he described me. That's a good thing, because it wouldn't have been true. When God's description is given, thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth Eternity. Think about that. Eternity is impossible to describe. It goes from one end of forever to the other end of forever. And God inhabits all of that. Then he says, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of of the contrite ones. It is unbelievable to me as a frail human being that we can have a relationship with this holy God. And friends, if you look at the scriptures, every single time that someone saw Jesus Christ after he was crucified, even remember John the John the Apostle, the one who was closest to Jesus on the earth, the disciple whom he loved is described in over and over in, in John. In Revelation, when Jesus, the glorified Christ, met G- John there on the Isle of Patmos, what had happened to John? He ran up to him and said, Hey, Jesus, how's it been? I'm glad to see you. What happened? He fell on his face as dead. Why? Because the glorious, holy presence of Jesus Christ was so powerful, he didn't even recognize him. Every picture we have of Jesus is this picture of a a nice-looking man. 
Sometimes on a cross with a little drop of blood coming down each hand. Those images are so far from what Jesus Christ is. If Jesus Christ became here in the midst of our presence in bodily form for just a second, every one of us, whether you believe in Jesus or whether you don't, would be on your face before him. Because he's holy. Friends, when we, as Christians, insist on the principle of purity in our life, We give illustration, mind you a very poor illustration, but we give illustration to the holiness of God. It's only right that those children of a holy God would conduct their lives in a pure, holy way. That should be expected, because after all we say the power of God is within us, right? If God's holiness is his main defining characteristic, it ought to be extremely important to Christian living. Are you living a holy life, a pure life? Secondly, God is love. Again, there's a number of scriptures here. I put them up there. We'll turn to Romans 5, verse 8. Remember I told you when we were looking at love that love is more an expression of your character than it is about their actions? You don't love people because they're nice to you. That, that's even what the ungodly does do, the Bible says. It shouldn't surprise us then that the love, the source love of the love we have for others is the same way. In chapter 5 of Romans verse 8 it says, But God commendeth his love toward us, because we were such lovely human beings and we were so good and so nice and he just couldn't help himself loving us, right? No, what does it say? In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's love, the love of Jesus Christ, was for us as sinners. Vile, wicked, corrupt, we hated him and yet he loved us. That's love. Again, when a Christian has love that serves others, then it illustrates a loving God. How can your friends and neighbors and those you meet best understand God's love? By your love. That's what I'm saying. God's love cost him. So friends, love is going to cost you. That's the way love works. Love gives, love serves. Again, is your Christian life expressing God, illustrating love? By the way, you may have wondered where is the principle of non resistance in my list of principles? Don't I believe in non resistance? Yeah, I believe in non resistance pretty hard to live out Christ's love and to live out the principle of forgiveness and to be resistant to evil. 
That's why I didn't, not because I don't believe in non-resistance, but that's why I didn't give you one of those core eight principles to build your life upon. Because if you build it on love and forgiveness, you will never go to war. You'll never fight for your possessions because it's, it, it's not within you. It's not in your character. So I do believe in non-resistance, but this is where it flows from, from his love and from his forgiveness. Thirdly, God is immutable, and that's a word you probably don't use. It means that God is unchanging. And we have the scriptures as well saying that. Let's just look at James chapter 1. No, James is in here. I've seen it before. James 1, 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. So many things we could look at, so many verses. Jesus Christ, yesterday, this, today, this, the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. God doesn't change. God is an unchanging God. And that's what gives us courage to love Him and worship Him because He's not going to be different tomorrow. What principle that we've looked at in your life, young people, is illustrating the unchangeable character of God? Someone. You're starting to see the pattern here, aren't you? I see you paging back. Integrity, okay? How do you illustrate a God who is unchanging by living integrity out in your life? Can people depend on you that you're going to be the same tomorrow, the next day, and the next? If you live by principles that govern everything you do in life, then you will be the same tomorrow and the next day and the next. And you will give illustration to a God who is unchanging, to a God who is built on a character of holiness and perfectness. That God is not going to change. We never wonder if He's going to forgive us tomorrow because He forgave us yesterday. We know He's going to be there. And your integrity as Christians illustrates that truth. Your consistency in your Christian life gives witness to God's consistency. We know God is merciful. Again, several scriptures many we could look at to describe God's mercy. Let's go to Luke 18. An interesting little account here. There's two men going up to pray to the temple, and Jesus tells them about them. And I want you to notice what the publican, the one who finds God to be merciful, says. Verse 13, The publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his breast, eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. 
For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Our God is a merciful God. As long as there is time, we can go to a merciful God no matter what we have done. And He is there to hear us. And He will be there to forgive us when we turn in repentance to Him. Now how do you illustrate? How do you best tell your neighbors about a merciful God? By living a life of forgiveness. By living a principle of forgiveness. By showing them mercy. When they do something wrong, I remember as a teenager, I was 15, and one of the first times I was with the youth, I got a ride home from one of the older guys in the youth group, and he had a nice Grand Prix, a nice car, and I was sitting in the back seat, and they, I guess they weren't particularly well built, but I was fiddling with the headrest on the back there, just playing with it, and it had a plastic piece that held it in place, and I snapped it off. And I sat there for the rest of the way home wrestling with what should I do. I could have just sat it there, you know, and left it. And he would have never known. Wouldn't have found it then, at least. He would have found it sometime, but he wouldn't have known I did it. I finally decided, you know what, I have to tell him. It was a very difficult thing. It was a stupid thing for me to do, for one. So when I got to my house, I'm sweating probably by then, and I, I said to him, hey, I'm really sorry, but I, I broke your headrest in the back there. I'll pay you for it. And what he said to me, an illustration of how forgiveness works if you're living it in your life. He wasn't angry. He wasn't upset. He said, oh, don't worry about it. It's just a car. I've damaged other things for very different people. Got a very different response. Friends, if we have a forgiving spirit, forgiving attitude, then we don't get angry when something gets damaged. By the way, I did tell my mother-in-law about the car, the little extra effects in the back. She was good about it. It was good. (laughs) When you live out an attitude of forgiveness, they see a reflection of the God who removes transgressions as far as the east is from the west. Friends, when we grab them by the neck, so to speak, how are they going to understand that God forgives? God is truth. Again, there's many scriptures here. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Let me just take you to the last one there, John chapter 8. Why is it so essential? so important to God that we live by truth. Jesus says something here to the Pharisees in John 8. They're going back and forth. They're quite upset with him, and he's explaining to them that he he was around before Abraham was, and Mary and Joseph aren't his parents, and they can't understand. And they're going back and forth, They accuse him of being born of fornication. And in verse 44, Jesus says to them, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. 
Why is it so important to us, truth? Why is it so important that you live a principled life of honesty? Because God is truth. God embodies truth. When Jesus Christ came to the world, he was full of grace. Remember the power of God to do the will of God? And truth. He was truth. He says, I am the truth. So in God's kingdom, in God himself is truth. There's no lying. God cannot lie. You have that a hundred times, not a hundred, but several times in the scriptures. God is truth. And on the other side is the head of the other kingdom, okay? And what does Jesus say about him? He is the father of lies. All lying comes from the devil. And when we so despise the truth, God himself in a way, that we lie in our lives, we are violating God. That's why it's so much we find in the scriptures that God hates lying. He hates lying lips because they're a contradiction to who he is. So how do you show a God of truth? By living a life of truthfulness. By reflecting the truth. When Christians mislead others, when we're deceptive in our actions, in our business dealings, when we lie to others about what we're doing, when we live hypocritical lives is one of the horrible ways that we distort the truth and cloud the truth of God. We show, we cloud, sorry, the image of a perfect God of truth. God is an eternal spirit. Again, scriptures, if you want to write them down, you can. We won't look at all of them. Let's go to John 4, the account where the woman at the well is speaking with Jesus, and they're discussing worship and understanding where the place of worship is. And Jesus says, there's not a place of worship He says in verse 24 that God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The verse there in Exodus 3 is where God came to Moses in the burning bush. And Moses asked the question, when I go to tell the children of Israel to to come with me and that you are leading me, who shall I say sent me? And what would God say? God says, tell him, I am has sent you. I am that I am. I am is a very simple phrase, a very powerful phrase of self-existence. God never was. God never will be. God is. He he is. It's hard to explain. It's hard to put in words. But he's self-existent. He has no cause. No one created God. No one made God. He is. I am. He's an eternal spirit. He... I can't explain it to you. I really can't. But you understand God is not like us. God is not a human being. God is not building an earthly kingdom. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. You know where the truth that we're illustrating and how we illustrate this truth Listen, this is the way. When you live with eternal perspective, meaning that because of that eternal perspective, you're not going to fit in with this world. You're going to live out nonconformity. 
you witness to the reality of a future kingdom, of another world so different from this one, the world where God dwells and where his children will dwell. Remember I told you nonconformity is not a dirty word. It's a natural difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. And when you live out nonconformity in your life, you're giving expression and you're giving illustration to this truth that God is an eternal spirit. He's not from this place. He's not building up a kingdom here. He's not building a kingdom of power on the earth. Living, we live out a very, very different kingdom. But when we fight for our earthly possessions and our rights, and when we deeply embed ourselves in this world, we give people reason to doubt the reality of eternity. Why should a person believe you when you tell them about an eternal God and a place you long to go to of heaven? And you're fighting for your rights here. You're fighting for your things here. You're building up this great kingdom of it looks like you plan to stay forever. Why would they believe you that there's an eternity, another place? We need to live it out. God is glorious. Again, a number of scriptures. Let's go to 1 Chronicles 29. In this account, you have David... And Solomon gathering all these things together to make this great offering. And in verse 11, you have this, it's interesting, you have this contrast. You know, there's 10,000 talents of silver, and there's 18,000 talents of brass, and there's 100,000 talents of iron. You have all these physical things that they brought together. And then in verse 11, it says, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and that in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. It's just interesting to me that here's this stuff they gathered together, you know, this great stuff. And then they say, but actually, God, it's all yours already. And not only everything on the earth, but all of the heavens, everything. Your great majesty is so far above these things. And I think of the verse in Isaiah 66, I think it's verse 1, where God is looking down while they're building their house, the temple, and he says, The heavens are my throne, the earth is my footstool. And where is this house you built for me? How is God going to uh, live in this little temple they built? You see, God is glorious. And again, I, it's so hard to illustrate in words God. I, I was relieved recently to hear that words can never 100% describe reality. I felt a little better preaching about God. As it's impossible to try to describe God's glory and majesty to you. But God is glorious. God is so far above anything you can ever imagine. 
in these verses, I'd like you to look at them with me. Isaiah 42. Here's the point, and here's where this principle, where we tie a principle into this truth about God. I trust this will bring maybe deeper understanding to some of the things that you do. Isaiah 42, verse 8. God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. And my glory will I not give to another, neither any praise to graven images. In other places in the scriptures, we have God described as a jealous God. God saying that I am glory, I am majesty, I am the one to be worshipped, and I'm not going to share that with anyone. I'm not sharing my glory with you. That's what he's saying. In Jeremiah, you turn over there to chapter 9. Verse 23, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me. For I am the Lord which exercises loving kindness, judgment and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Don't glory in what you are what you can do in your beauty, in your talents, in your abilities. God says, I'm not going to share my glory. Sound familiar? Remember the principle of modesty? Why is it important for us to be modest? Why is it important for us to be humble? Because we are illustrating a God who truly is glorious and who deserves all glory. We, we can't take any glory to ourselves because if we do, we're stealing it from God. And God says, I'm not going to share it. God is the glorious one. And when we conceal our glory, when we reflect any accomplishments that we have truly to Him in our hearts, then we are revealing into a people around us one who is truly glorious. What we're really saying is, I'm not worthy to unlatch His shoes like John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus coming. I, nothing I can accomplish, nothing you can accomplish, none of your beauty ladies ever could compare to the glory of God. And that's why in all of God's kingdom, I mean in God's kingdom, you see glory veiled over and over again in Scripture. And I don't have time to, to show it all to you this morning. By the way, ladies and men, if you go back to 1 Corinthians 11, and you study what it says about the prayer veiling, as we call it, there, you'll discover that this same principle of modesty is there. Glory. Woman is the glory of the man. A veiled glory. That's what it's about. Ties together. You can understand it. You can embrace it. You can... It's, it's ours because it makes perfect sense because it's a perfect God. In the Old Testament, they veiled glory. When Moses went up the mountain and he met with God and he came down and his face was glowing with glory, what did he do? He veiled his face. In heaven, those beasts with six wings, angels, whatever you want to call them, who are flying with two wings, and with two wings they're covering their feet, and with two wings they're covering their face. Why? 
because they're in the presence of one who is infinitely more glorious than anything they could ever bring to the table. And they're veiling their glory. And you know what? They didn't get done yet because they're still in the presence of one who is infinitely more glorious than they are. And that's why, friends, we veil glory in our lives. Whether it's physical beauty for you ladies, whether it's the glory of your hair, ladies, whether it's the glory of accomplishment and power and prestige, men, we always, always veil glory because we're deflecting to the glory of the one who is truly glorious. Does that make sense? One more thing, God is authority. Again, we could look at these scriptures. We won't take the time. In John 19, 11, Jesus says there to John, to Pilate, when Pilate says, don't you know who I am and what power I have over you? Jesus says, you don't have any power unless God gives it to you. And it was true. In Daniel 4, it's the account of Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar that you're going to eat grass and live in the field until you understand that God directs the power or the authority in the kingdom of men. I don't know if this is the reason or not, but I find it interesting that it took him seven years of eating grass to figure that out. How many years of eating grass is it going to take us to figure out that authority comes from God? And that when we live in submission in our lives, we are honoring authority and willing to submit to that authority. We're giving an illustration to those around us of one God who is perfect authority and perfect power. Not because the authority you're honoring is perfect, but because the one who is given authority is perfect. God is the authority. It's his idea. In fact, if you study submission, you'll discover that a submission existed before the world was created. Why do I say that? Because in the very Godhead, in, in the identity of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, you see authority and you see submission. Submission didn't come about because of fallen man. Submission was God comes right out of the character of God, authority and submission. I want to give you one final illustration this morning because for me, pictures are worth a thousand words. This really is the theme verse of what I'm trying to say in this illustration. Notice that it says, Let your light so shine among men that they may see your good works, and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That's what we're talking about. And here is an illustration, and I need to explain it to you because it's not going to make much sense to you. In the center of that there, I have a, a candle, I guess, illustrating your light. Let your light shine before men. There's a little flame at the top. And then in my work, and this is unfortunately how we as humans are, we illustrate from things we understand. In my work, we stand bucket elevators. That's one of the things we do. And when we stand bucket elevators, they don't stay standing by themselves. They would fall over. They can be 100 to almost 200 feet tall, and they're just a little small block. They would fall over. So each of those 
lines coming down where I've written the words of the principles we've been looking at illustrate guy cables. And most of you, how many of you even know what a guy cable is? Uh, that's what I figured. So there's the bad illustration, but it's the best one I got. Just imagine this speaker here, 100 feet tall, okay? Would it stay standing? Not a chance. How can it stay standing? If you put cables from the top of that speaker out on about a 45 degree angle to the ground in all sides of it, it'll stay standing just fine. That's what a guy cable is. Picture a cell tower. Maybe you can understand that, a communication tower. It's tall, it's very frail this way. The only way it stays standing is with these cables, okay? Each of the eight principles we've illustrated throughout this time we've had together is one of the guy cables holding that light in place, okay? Are you with me? I want all of you to know what I'm saying. Is there anyone that doesn't understand what I'm trying to illustrate there yet? I'll try again, because I want you to get it. You're not admitting it if you don't. That's okay, too. Now I'm going to go to, uh, well, let me just say a little more. If any of those cables are removed in the physical, if you have a bucket elevator and one of those cables comes loose, you know what happens? The strain on the rest of the cables is increased tremendously and usually leads to the collapse of that structure. We've had it happen pretty close a couple times. So now, and this is, again, I work with design, and so I'm going to do this because it's how my mind thinks. I'm going to try to catch you up. I've just changed views, okay? You were seeing kind of an isometric view of that thing with the guy cables. Now the candle that was standing in the center is you're looking straight at it from the top. Okay, very center there is a candle with the flames. And going out are the, the cables, the guy cables. They would be going from the top of the candle out to the ground, okay? You're looking at it straight from the top. You see each of those lines going out would be the cables, but you can't see the depth because you're looking at it from the top. Are you all with me? I want you to understand. Now, each of these cables, principles, in your Christian life, are essential for your light to shine. And that's what I'm trying to illustrate. And it's so true. You think about this. Look at the principle of nonconformity. If you remove that cable, now instead you'd have about a 90 degree angle there where there'd no longer be any support to hold that candle in a vertical position. You know what happens to the principle of modesty and purity when you lose nonconformity? They are strained tremendously. In other words, they're, they're doing a lot more work. To it's going to be really hard for you to maintain the principle of modesty and purity if there's no nonconformity. Do you understand? You know what will happen next? One of those cables will give out. You will no longer have the principle of purity or of, or of modesty. Sorry, They'll disappear. So they will break. As soon as two of those principles are gone in your life, that candle is going to fall over. It's only a matter of a, the next windstorm that blows from that direction. It's flat. And it's true of every one of those principles. You know how many people in North America today are running around flapping their mouths about Jesus Christ as Savior with no principles governing their life. You know what it looks like to the world? 
Not a light. Not a city set on a hill. It looks like confusing gibberish. But when a person, a Christian, who is a principled person, the principles we just described, is letting their light shine and is living out these principles in what they do in everyday life, now that light makes sense. If you don't live out the principle of love, you're not likely going to live out the principle of forgiveness for very long. You're going to hold grudges, you're going to be angry. And you know what's going to happen to your light? It's going to fall over in a smoldering pile of ash. Young people, that's why we do what we do. That's why it's important the way you live. Because, friends, you can never effectively, and I'm not saying that no one is ever brought to Jesus Christ by someone who doesn't have a principled life. Don't misunderstand me. But you can never effectively let your light shine, bring glory to the holy God in heaven, unless you live out a principled Christian life. You simply can't do it. But when you live by God's principles, and then you speak of the love and power of God, it makes sense to the hearer. They can tell you believe it because you're illustrating it in your life. They can tell it matters to you. Then God will be glorified. Others will be drawn to him. And you know what? You'll never wonder why you exist on the earth. You'll be living life with purpose. just want to leave you with one more statistic. There's about 100 young people in this room, many others as well, Young people, if you live principled lives to the glory of God the Father, if you let your light shine, people will be drawn to you. They will. You will have opportunities to share and show the love of God to others. You will have opportunity to tell them about a Savior who has the power to change them just like it had the power to change you. And you know what? If all hundred of you in this room would just tell one person and just disciple one other person in the next year, just show them in the next year what it means to live a principled life, help them understand it in their lives, and help them to be a principled Christian so they can let their light shine. If you did that, all of you won this year. Then all of those and all of you won the following year. And all of those new ones and all of those existing ones, one more the next year. You know how long it would take for you to principle, reach with principled Christianity, every single person on the earth. Take less than 30 years. By the time you reach your mid-40s, many of you, the entire 7 billion people that live on the earth could have been touched by principled living out Christianity. Remember I told you at the beginning that Virginia should never be the same? It's true. And you know why it's not happening? Because it's also true what most non-Christians use as the reason why they haven't come to Christ is because there's so many hypocrites in the church. You know what hypocrites are? People who don't have principles in their life. They never live out their Christian faith. It changes from day to day. They act this way one time and that way another time. If you have principle in your life, you won't live like that. 
and your light will shine and your life will bring glory and honor to the one who made you and one day you'll sit with him in his throne. May God bless you.